The Bible chronicles the creation of man and the mandate given to him to rule and subdue the earth, along with every power that had thrown it into confusion. The ugly truth is that mankind fell from the high honor of representing Adonai in this way, even joining the pre-existent rebellious forces that he was supposed to subdue. However, in the mercy of Adonai, mankind would be redeemed and restored to the high calling of bringing everything in heaven and on earth under the will of God so that the creation might be in total harmony with the rule of Adonai. Amen. This process would involve a separation between those that would walk in the way of holiness and those who would persist in walking in their own foolish ways. Those who would walk in the way of holiness or complete devotion to the rule of God would become liberators of the creation, beginning with the pinnacle of Adonai's created things, namely mankind. Yeah, come on. Jesus the Christ is the first among the descendants of Adam to express this truth in perfection. Amen. You're going to find that expressed truth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Amen. Yeah. Just as we have been have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of yeah. heaven. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is the only complete example of a descendant of Adam that perfectly displays the way that men are to walk. Amen. In John 14, verse 6, he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. In our text tonight, we will encounter the fourth and fifth times that the way is referred to in the book of Acts, and the references are encompassed by opposition. Yeah. That is because spiritual forces are at work to prevent the kingdom of God from being fully realized on earth. But they will fail. Yeah. And the text tonight illustrates this truth Amen. perfectly for us. Come on. These realities are immensely important for you to grasp because the same rebellious forces are still present in our world. Yeah. And we will overcome them, Amen. doing precisely what the followers of the way have done for centuries. Oh, yeah. We will enter into the theater of warfare during every one of its various manifestations, and then yes. overcome the opposition by the spirit and the very word of God. Hallelujah! This will result in men being freed and joining oh, in our efforts yes. to see the kingdom fully realized on earth in spite of of the opposition. The message of the kingdom permeated the onset of the book of Acts. The initial focus was on Jerusalem, on Judea, Samaria, and even Galilee. And we are now in the outer regions of the world. Last week we showed you guys this slide. This slide is entitled, Expansion Efforts Have Reached. So up to this point, the kingdom of God has been expanded as related in the book of Acts, and has reached Cyprus, 
three yeah. times. Yep. Brazilian Antioch, four times. Oh, come on. Iconium, four times. Yeah. Lystra, four times. Ooh. Get it. Derby, three times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then we also have Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, come Corinth, on. Ephesus. Come Ephesus! Come on. And we have participants in this journey being Barnabas, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, among many others. Every one of these expansion efforts was within the realm of Gentile beastly powers, and yet the message of the kingdom flourished. Yeah, dude! Brave men and women fearlessly risked their lives as followers of the way in order to display the deeds and teachings of the Jewish king, who is the rightful ruler of the world. You might take note that the last city on our slide is... Ephesus. And it is the first church mentioned in the book of Revelation. Come on. Tonight's chapter could be seen as the preeminent spiritual clash between followers of the way and the principalities of this world prior to our focus transitioning towards the journey to Rome. Tonight, we're going to see extraordinary miracles. Come on. And the dominance of the kingdom over, over both archons and lower level principalities. Yeah. Yeah. Tonight, we're going to see the setting in which, the, in which ministers of every kind were trained to carry on this great mission that we have come to participate in. Last week, you were taught the marks of a minister and it is fitting that we review oh, yeah. 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 So these are the marks of a minister. One who is willingly working hard while ministering for the glory of the gospel. Working to support your brother's calling. Oh, yeah. Fulfilling your duty to the point of innocence. Yeah. Standing despite growing opposition. Complete dependency on the sovereignty of God. Strengthening the disciples with intention and at risk to yourself. Adding adequacy and strength to other ministers. And finally, ministering as husband and wife while in partnership with other families. (laughs) Those that have gone before us entered into the theater of warfare and prevailed. The opposition that they faced was insurmountable in the strength of a natural man. Mm. However, they were not just natural men. That's because they were filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ and bore the image of the man from heaven. The practical examples that they left us are the key to our continued success. And we want to join with them in this example so that we can also say, just like Acts 20.35 says, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Yeah. While these words could be applied to money, they are far more applicable to the work product of your entire life. Yeah. We want to work hard in every area of our lives to help those that are presently weaker than ourselves precisely so that they might become stronger, say stronger, stronger, stronger. and we might be blessed for it in the theater of war that all of us must face. That's good. So while we're all contemplating the theater of warfare that Acts 19 takes place in, it is necessary to remember this slide. Rising tensions between Rome and the Jews. The Jews of Rome, however, who had become very numerous, were not allowed to hold assemblages there. An enactment in full correspondence with the general policy of Augustus regarding Judaism in the West. 
The edicts mentioned were largely due to the intimacy of Claudius with Herod Agrippa, grandson of Herod the Great, who had been living in Rome and had been in some measure instrumental in securing the succession for Claudius. Whatever concessions to the Jews Claudius may have been induced out of friendship for Herod Agrippa to make at the beginning of his reign, Centurius records an event assigned by some to the year 50 AD, though others suppose it to have taken place somewhat later. Among the Jews thus banished from Rome were Aquila and Priscilla, uh -oh. with whom Paul had become associated at Corinth in Acts 18.2. With the reign of Claudius is also associated the famine, which was foretold by Agabus in Acts 11. So early in the book of Acts, we all became aware of an inter-family tension that existed between believing and non-believing Jews. Y'all remember that? Yeah. yeah. As the message of the kingdom has moved to the outer regions of the world, the tensions have been multiplied for the already divided Jewish family. Because the Roman Empire has grown increasingly hostile toward all Jews, whether they follow the way or oppose it. For the followers of the way, this means that they face hostilities from non-believing Jews and Gentiles alike. This fact only adds fuel to the raging spiritual fires in Ephesus. What we're about to encounter is one of the most prolific examples of opposing spiritual forces recorded in all of the book of Acts. The climate and spiritual geography of Ephesus was uniquely tied to its economic prosperity. The point is that in addition to the inter-family tensions present within Judaism, the believers also had to face opposing spiritual interests that were religiously devoted to satanic powers and were also financially benefited by them. Uh, on that note, we have a slide for you. Ephesus became Paul's base of operation yeah. during his third missionary journey. Ephesus was the home of the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Goodness. The temple, according to its ruins, was 239 feet wide and 418 feet long. Guys, that is four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Wow. As a commercial center, Ephesus was the leading city of the province of Asia. Its present-day extensive ruins reveal the glory of its past. The city's prim primary economic industry, the tradition in Acts 19.35 that her cult image, that being Artemis's cult image, had fallen from heaven, suggests that the original statue had been carved from a meteor, although no other literary references to that claim have survived. The center of the cult of Artemis was in Ephesus, where her image was minted on silver coins and the statuettes carved in civic processions. Conversions to Christianity certainly would have curtailed donations to the Artemisium. They would have had a detrimental influence on the cult worship of the goddess, and they would have see been seen as a threat to the temple's ancillary economic activity. Uh -oh. This could be seen as a strange theater of activity for Paul to center his efforts in the middle of. However, the believers in the first century rose to meet this opposition, and they overcame it for the glory of God. Oh, yeah. The cult of Artemis was the economic backbone of the city 
Islamic center of Islam. Our point is that much of the conflict we will read about was the result of religious fervor. But it was also undoubtedly induced by a fear that Ephesus would lose its source of economic stability if the people ever stopped making Hajj or pilgrimage to the city. I just hinted at similarities between the satanic forces of Islam and Ephesus. But the more profound historical correlations are with a different satanic institution. We'll read the next slide, and perhaps those who are perceptive among you will be able to connect the dots on your own. Help us, Lord. So syncretism. <laughs> According to a study by York University, there is evidence of syncretism between the ancient worship of Artemis in Ephesus and the elevation of Mary to Theotokos. Wow. You're kidding! Wow. The study suggests that this fusion was not a result of the church-initiated action to convert the Ephesians, but rather the Ephesians forcing the early church to accommodate their traditions of Artemis by reshaping and reinterpreting the authority and responsibilities of the Virgin Mary. Yikes. Mary, Mary. <laughs> Artemis was a Greek goddess of hunting, wilderness, childbirth, and virginity. What? What, what was that last word? Virginity. Uh-oh. She was also worshipped as a goddess of fertility and childbirth in Ephesus. Mary is the mother of Jesus Christ in Christianity and is considered one of the most important figures of Christian theology. So let's connect these dots. It is beyond the scope of our study tonight to do an in-depth review of the similarities between Mary worship and the worship of Artemis. There wouldn't be enough hours. We are only touching on the subject so that you will understand that the same spiritual forces that we will be reading about are still present in our world today. This is invaluable insight as we examine this chapter. The followers of the way will illustrate how these powers are to be overcome in every century and in every theater of warfare that we encounter them in. Amen. This is true whether we are talking about Islam, Mary worship, or the cult of Artemis. Now, you are all familiar with the church council in Acts 15. Yeah. History records many more councils attempting to solve difficult problems in the same spirit as the original council of Acts 15. Most of them failed on one level or another. <laughs> That's definitely true. That's true. One such council occurred in the city of Ephesus. Really? This is the city that Mary was given the title God-bearer oh, in the year 431 A.D. Wow. Our next slide is entitled Theotokos. From the 4th century onward, the writers and fathers of the church commonly used it as a specific title for Mary. Not from the 1st century, just from the 4th no. century? It was the 4th century oh. onward. Okay. Very interesting correlation. Nestorius objected to the term as improper, <laughs> yeah. unbiblical, yeah. that's right, and absent from the terminology used by the Council of Nicaea, tainted by paganism, uh -oh. because it presents Mary as a goddess, okay. and argued that instead the term should be replaced with Christotokos. A definitive response to his objections were given by the Council of Ephesus in 431. 
which approved the legitimacy of the use of this term and gave it a precise meaning. Wow. Again, guys, it is beyond the scope of our meeting tonight to discuss the propensity of unbiblical terms in order to promote inherently pagan ideals. Wow. Yeah, that happens. We are bringing up this issue solely to demonstrate that it was in Ephesus that a female deity was venerated. And it was in Ephesus that Mary was given the title of God-bearer, one that undoubtedly contributed to present-day Mary worship. You think so? Definitely. (laughs) The council in Ephesus may have been well-intended, but the dark spiritual forces of this world, they tend to monopolize any deviation from the word of God in order to corrupt the one true way of holiness, the same one that the law, the prophets, the writings, and the body of Jesus illustrate perfectly. Amen. More than ever, church, it is important that we devote ourselves wholly to the expression of Scripture and its unadulterated application in our own lives. Amen. Come on! So let's look at the link between Artemis and Ephesus. Okay. We have already noted that in the local nativity myth, Artemis was said to have been born near to the city. The frequency of her fame in official documents and on coins indicates her relationship with the city, and the names of new citizens of Ephesus were inscribed on the wall of the temple of Artemis, showing the link between the city and the goddess. Further, Artemis can represent Ephesus on coins, celebrating treaties between Ephesus and other cities, and thus personifies the city. A result of this bond was that that Artemis was thought of as protecting the city's fortifications and its general welfare. welfare. In an inscription written in the mid-2nd century AD, the people of Ephesus ensured that the festivals and sacrifices of Artemis could be undertaken. They said, that, they said that in this way, with the improvement of the honoring of the goddess, our city will remain more illustrious and more blessed wow. for all time. Wow. R.A. Kersley com- comments, the people of Ephesus appear to have believed that their own lives were deeply affected by the degree of reverence according according Artemis. All of this evidence shows the strength of the bond between Artemis and the city. So you should be getting the idea that Artemis and Ephesus were strongly linked to one another. We could go on to tell you that festival processions were held every two weeks. We could describe the way in which a minimum of 240 people marched through the streets with objects of worship in the view of crowds during each festival. We could describe to you the way that these processions dominated the city's atmosphere. We could, but we're not going to. No, we're not. (laughs) Instead, we have decided to move away from books that describe these things and alternatively rely on what our own eyes have beheld and what our own hands have touched. We are going to show you videos of members of this team on site in Ephesus. The first video is Pastor Judah on June 20th of 2017. Come on, baby! The Lovely Association were at the ruins of Ephesus streets that Paul walked. It's a particular image that we wanted to show you guys. If you look at the top here, there's an idol that is carved in that represents Artemis. And 
This image is on every Starbucks cup that you've ever bought. The Apostle Paul walked through these streets with his disciples, with angry Ephesians, walking, persecuting him all over this place while they were preaching the gospel and it spread as far as Asia. And these were the things that he was opposing. Idols all around us, carved in stone, that are still here to this day, that men have dedicated their lives to. And the gospel reached this far and even further because of their sacrifice. We love you. We want to encourage you with what's going on in Turkey now. So we could clearly have shown you scholarly works that conveyed the image of Artemis or Artemis, and you would have seen that they are identical to our present day Starbucks logo. However, the video showed you someone that you know and love physically discovering it for the first time personally. These kind of events are an awakening experience. An awakening experience. So Judah and I were walking around Ephesus, and we discovered that image together. Yeah. These kinds of things remind us that the same spiritual forces present in the first century are still opposing the gospel today. It became very real to us. Tonight, you will see how the original followers of the way triumph in the theater of warfare, and you will know how you should triumph in this theater of warfare. Amen. Amen. So this next video is Pastor Aragina, also on June 20th of 2017. It looks like a pile of rocks. 
What you're staring at is the ruins of the church location that the Third Ecumenical Council was in when they declared Mary to be the mother of God. Wow. Right there in Ephesus. Right across from that amphitheater you just saw. By the way, this sign is posted right in front of it. The Church of Mary. Wow. The Council Church. The 145 by 30 meter large, three-aisled Bishop's Church of the City was erected in the southern stoa of the Olympian Quarter. The Basilica became renowned as the site of the Third Ecumenical Council. Mary as Mother of God in A.D. 431. The church was rebuilt numerous times in the late Byzantine period, at the latest in the 7th century. The seat of the bishop was transferred to St. John's Basilica. But as a uh, cemetery church, yeah. the, church <laughs> the Church of Mary continued to be used well into the Middle Ages. <laughs> it's a great name for a church, a cemetery church. Yeah, so we could clearly have shown you scholarly works that cited this location and the events that happened here. However, we thought that it might make more of an impact on your view of tonight's chapter to see our actual picture. Yeah. You can imagine how this impacted us standing in a 99.8% Islamic country and looking at the ruins of a church dedicated to the worship of Mary as the mother of God. The same satanic forces that were in the world during the time of Paul are very much present in our environment today. Yep, yep. This evening, you will see an excellent example of how to enter into these theaters of warfare and overcome them. Hallelujah. So this next video is Pastor Eric in June of 2017. I was pregnant. I got the church into the one association and life-changing ministries. We're standing here in the temple to our teams. And... Uh, in West Turkey. This is uh, the town of uh, Sotuk. And what an extraordinary place to be. The Apostle Paul spent more than two years here. He lectured in the Hall of Tyrannus. This is where there was a riot because Demetrius, the silversmith, uh, was upset. Paul was turning the city upside down. They had burned their holy books worth more than 50,000 days' wages. This is where the letter to the Ephesians was written about warfare in the spiritual realm. It closes with an admonition, an admonition that you need to know, that I need to know. It says to all who have loved Jesus with an undying love. Church, standing in places like this, we remember that our love for Jesus is undying. That also means that our love for our fellow man has to be undying. If Paul could face imperial Rome here, the cult of Artemis, Surely we can face Islam here and teach them about a love that conquers all. A sword that is of the word of God and of the spirit, not a sword of natural warfare. What a beautiful place. What an amazing time. We are here with a brother from Antakya who first heard our message there and is inquiring of God in all of earnest. And now we're speaking to you where you stand. Is your love undying for the gospel? Do you sit in the heavenly realms with Christ? Because you have been blessed with every spiritual 
that displayed the ruins of the temple to Artemis? You know we could. However, we thought it best to show you video of us in that location. We were with a disciple named Toprak, who was from Antioch. The spiritual battle is real, and you could probably tell by the sirens going off throughout the video and the interference of the wind in the audio, and specifically it coming in at the exact time when we're talking about the word and the spirit conquering Islam. <laughs> at times it seems that everything in creation is straining against the very liberation that we are called to bring. This should not move you. It should embolden yes! you to yeah. enter into the theater of warfare and prevail just as the men who went before us did. Amen. They left us a legacy, and now it is our turn to build upon it. Amen. Amen. So as we pray, and then after getting to the text, we want you guys to keep this slide in your mind and heart. It is the order of warfare in our text tonight, and it is our battle plan to enter the theater of warfare and win. Come on. One more time, this theater of warfare. Number one, the brotherly development. Number two, inter-family conflict. Number three, competing ideas. Number four, rival principalities. Number five, radical repentance. Six, spiritual direction. And number seven, equally valid concurrent missions. Yeah. So man of God, David Bonham, yeah. welcome back, brother. Why don't you stand up for us and pray as we get into the text. Let's go! Yeah. Oh, God, I thank you for your overcoming spirit that you have yes, inside of us. God, I thank you how you are going to impart inside of us a new vigor to dive into your word, to have spiritual eyes, to have insight to the nations, what you will do there and do here. God, I'm praying that you would open up our minds to understand your word tonight yes. so we may be equipped with everything that you have placed in our hands. Well, hallelujah! Amen! Yeah. I've been waiting a month to say this. There is a sexy grandma on the front row. I've been in love with her for three decades. Amen! And she is going to read the text to us. Yeah. Come on, Texty! While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. 
God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Amen. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. In this way, the word of the Lord spread wildly and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I had been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He went, he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith, silversmith named Demetrius, who made the silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the workmen and related trade and said, men if, you know, men, if you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus, and in practicality the whole province of Asia, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger not only... To, that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and of the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis to the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Articus, Paul's traveling uh, companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of province, friends of Paul, sent a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing and up some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Wow. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Mm. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen 
have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are pro-counsels. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Well, well, some of you are trying to hide your Starbucks cups. <laughs> Let us pray to Mother Mary for forgiveness that Jennifer did not pronounce Aristarchus correctly. I'm kidding on all accounts. Let's get into our text tonight. Let's do it. Are you ready to enter the theater of warfare? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
So Acts 19, 1 through 7, are verses that have been tortured by various factions within Christianity until they have seemed to confess supporting views that substantiate any pre-existing doctrinal position. Any. Any. Our goal tonight will be to strip away two millennia of arguing and examine their clear implications from Luke's writings rather than from our own preferred interpretation that supports our pre-existing theology. That's a good idea, isn't it? Yeah. So in order to understand them, let's walk through the instances within the book of Acts that John the Immerser is mentioned. Beginning with Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The first mention of John, the immerser in the book of Acts, is a quote from Jesus, where the baptism of repentance that is accompanied by water is contrasted with a baptism that occurs in the Holy Spirit. The larger context of this quote is in reference to the baptism in the Holy Spirit empowering a greater witness. Amen. So we're working through the book of Acts, and we're showing you everywhere that John the Baptizer or John the Immerser is mentioned. Here's the second one. Acts 11, 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The second mention of John the Immerser in the book of Acts is Peter recalling Jesus' words regarding John's baptism of repentance that was accompanied by water. Again, in this instance, the water baptism <coughs> is being contrasted with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The larger context of this quote is of course in reference to the Cornelius event. After Peter witnessed them speaking in other tongues, he remembered that Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Which takes us to our next occurrence in Acts 13, 23 through 25. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So the third mention of John the Immerser in the book of Acts is Paul preaching to Jews in Antioch of Pisidia. In this instance, Paul makes it clear that John's proclamation was a baptism of repentance in preparation for something far greater Amen. that would come. Paul is quoting from Luke 3.16, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
the context of this third occurrence is also a contrast between a baptism of repentance that is accompanied by water and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So the fourth occurrence is in chapter 18 of the book of Acts, starting in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Amen. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In this fourth mention of John the Immerser, Apollos is said to be speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. The text then adds, though he knew only the baptism of John. Since the three previous references to John the Immerser baptizing for repentance and water is contrasted with the baptism in the Holy Spirit, the clear implication is that Apollos had repented and been baptized in water by John, but had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit when he met Priscilla and Aquila. The pattern that emerges from these four references is that a baptism in water for repentance prepares the way for a far greater experience, which is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So let's visualize the pattern together on a slide, along with Luke's references from his gospel. This slide is entitled, Repentance in Water and Baptism in the Holy Spirit. The first one in Acts 1 is a baptism in water which is contrasted with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. From Acts 11, a baptism in water, again, contrasted with the baptism in the Holy Spirit. From Acts 13, a baptism in water prepares the way for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And from Acts 18, a baptism in water, an accurate understanding of Jesus, still left room for a more adequate experience. Amen. Which is presumably... The baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, from Luke's first scroll, Luke 3, uh, verse 3, And he, John D. Mercer, went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Oh, catch that real quick. John's baptism was not just for repentance. It was for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Luke 3, verse 16 states, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he, that is Jesus, who is mightier than I, is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So now that this pattern from Luke's first scroll and Luke's second scroll has been firmly established in your minds, Let's work through Acts 19 verses 1 through 7 again with a pattern in view. We will also take the time to clear up misconceptions as we do it. Is this something y'all want to do? Yes! Yes. They're talking about it all over the One Association. So it's for you, 
and it's for them, and together we're about to grow. Amen. Let's take Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Mm. Remember that chapter breaks are not in the original scroll. This means that Luke intended you to connect Apollos' experience with what we are now reading. Apollos spoke and taught about Jesus accurately and yet needed something more adequate, say more adequate, adequate. than a baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins. The pattern and promise was always that after repentance and forgiveness of sin, the baptism in the Holy Spirit was to be expected. Amen. The other thing that you should gather from verse 1 is that the people Paul is encountering are called disciples. Luke uses the word mathetes for disciples in the book of Acts 30 times. In every other case, the people being referenced are always assumed to be genuine Christians. Every other case. Acts 11.26 even says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Wow. Wow. Matthews equals Christians. Wow. In other words, there is nothing in this text or in the larger volume of the book of Acts that would ever give you the impression that the men we are speaking about are anything other than genuine believers. Well, now that you know that, let's move to verse 2. And ask them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So while while Paul's question to these Christians would certainly ruffle denominational feathers today, it is not an unusual question given the pattern that we are discussing. The pattern portrayed in the book of Acts is that following repentance, usually accompanied by baptism in water, the baptism in the Holy Spirit was to be expected. This is what John the Immerser proclaimed, and it is what the book of Acts demonstrates repeatedly. Their answer has perplexed the casual reader for centuries, the disciples we mean. However, in the light of the pattern we are discussing, it seems quite obvious that what they are saying is that they had not heard that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was now available. In other words, the news of Pentecost had not yet reached them. Here is how the LSB conveys this verse. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. Look, we're not going to argue the linguistics of translation at this point. Instead, we're going to appeal to your common sense in the opening lines of the Tanakh. Yeah, listen carefully. Genesis 1-2 proclaims that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Put simply, it is not possible that these disciples had not heard of the Holy Spirit in a general sense. The most reasonable conclusion is that they had not heard the Holy Spirit being received by men. In other words, they had not heard that the pattern was being completed in the lives of disciples. This is entirely consistent with the experience of Apollos, which was related only four verses before this story is being conveyed. Moreover, Luke begins this story by referring to Apollos in the verse previous to this one. Paul's next question is also totally understandable in light of the demonstrable pattern that we've been discussing. The baptism of repentance, again, usually accompanied by water, was for the forgiveness of sins. And it was expected 
that it would be followed at some point by the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Are you all learning? Yeah. Yes. Well, let's pick up in verse 3. We have something else for you. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. These disciples had been immersed in water for the forgiveness of their sins, but had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. This was the position of everyone baptized in the ministry of John the Immerser, or Jesus prior to the Pentecost event, the whole nation. Today, it is common for us to develop fairly elaborate systems of theology with highly detailed and specific categories in terminology. However, it would be easy for today's reader to forget something. The disciples of Jesus were baptizing in the very same time period as John the Immerser. Wow. These baptisms in water were both for repentance and the forgiveness of sins in anticipation of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I can tell you're looking at me quizzically. So I want to refresh your memory of concurrent baptisms of John the Immerser and the disciples of Jesus by looking at a slide. The slide, not coincidentally, is called concurrent baptisms. John 3.26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well... He is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent ahead of him. Now move forward just a few verses. John 4, 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact... It was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Oh, wow. Clearly, John the Immerser and the disciples of Jesus were baptizing in the same time period. This was all prior to Pentecost, and the anticipation was that these disciples, who were baptized in water for the forgiveness of sins, would eventually receive the promised baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is true whether they were baptized by John the Immerser or baptized by the disciples of Jesus. It really makes no difference. It is also interesting to note that John included the clarification that Jesus did not baptize people in water. It was only the disciples of Jesus who baptized in water. This note was probably included precisely to avoid any confusion between the baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins and the baptism in the Holy Spirit that is accomplished by Jesus himself. Moving on to verse 4, Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. 
There were about 12 men in all. How many? 12. 12. Oh, wow. So these 12 disciples experienced exactly the same progression of events that the 12 tribes of Israel were intended to experience. Oh, wow. They repented of their sins and were baptized in water. They believed in Jesus and demonstrated their faith by becoming disciples. Then they experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it was evidenced by speaking in tongues and prophesying. The extent to which commentators torture this data to make it confess to their pre-existent systems of theology is unnecessary. The pattern displayed in Acts is compelling and does not need to be contorted to conform to our expressions of theology. Amen. Instead, the sequence of events outlined in the book of Acts should compel us to enter the theater of brotherly development and yearn to see every disciple experience the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom. Amen. As you reflect on the pattern that we have displayed, we encourage you to look at the larger compelling pattern taught by this ministry for more than 30 years. It is printed in the book that you might be familiar with called Discipleship Training. Yeah. It is printed in the book called Ministry Training. Mm-hmm. It should be written in a blank page in the front or back page of your Bible. This is what it looks like in ours. The compelling pattern. Acts 8 to Acts 2:38-39. The first one is John 4, 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. Then John 7, 37. Jesus is saying, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Moving to John 14, 15. Jesus is speaking of another helper. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In John 20, 22, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now we know that this is for the purpose of regeneration, as stated in John 3, 6 and Titus 3, 5. Moving on, they were told to be or were empowered with the Holy Spirit Subsequent to salvation. You see that next in Acts 1, 4 through 8, Acts 2, 1 through 4, Acts 8, 14 through 17, Acts 9, 17, Acts 10, Acts 19, 1. This all forms a very clear historical pattern. Now, our seventh is that something is seen or heard. It is either explicitly stated or can be reasonably be inferred that it was speaking or t- in tongues. Every time that the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred. This was the normative experience of the early church. As per Acts 11, 15 through 18. So, for those listening that are still skeptical. We believe that Adonai will give you insight into these things. Amen. Amen. We're praying for you right now. Come on. Our encouragement to you is to avoid reading into the text things that are not printed in the text. This practice will save you well and cause you to be able to avoid years of struggle that are the result of men protecting their predetermined framework. It is astounding to us that some men don't consider the disciples in Acts 19 
as believers. Wow. Just because they don't have the Holy Spirit. No, that's not why. The text gives... No, that's, that's not why. They don't consider these disciples in Acts 19 believers because if they are believers, then the text clearly shows that they were lacking the baptism in the Holy Ghost. In today's theological framework, people want to cram these two things together and resist at all uh, pressure that there is more of the Spirit to be had and be clothed with. The clear implication in the entire record of Acts is that this is nearly always two separate experiences, and when it's not, it's an extraordinary turn of events and beautiful. There is no esoteric formula, but there is a clear pattern that after repentance with water, you do then later, at some point, whether immediately or years later, receive an empowerment from the Spirit. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. These men are believers in Acts 19, yeah. and you would have to erase 29 other references written by Luke in Acts equating disciples with Christians to make them something other than believers. We went through the references of John the Immerser so that you did not get confused by the legions of commentaries that make these men something less than full-blown believers. As we're saying, the text gives no indication that they are not believers, and conversely gives every indication that they are believers. Yeah. These kinds of errors stem from the predetermined framework of the errant interpreter. So with that in mind, let's move to our next theater of warfare in verse 8. Amen. All entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So we have now entered into the theater of inter-family conflict. Wow. It's a Although, new one. It's a new one. Maybe. You'll see. Although this is related to the theater of brotherly development, it is discernibly distinct. Paul is arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God because he hopes to develop his brothers. The tribes of Israel are, in fact, a family. The theater of interfamily conflict arises when your family does not want to be developed as brothers. This is often a difficult theater of warfare. Yeah. The truth is that this distinction between brotherly development and interfamily conflict is defined within the word. I'm going to read Luke 8, 19 to you. Listen up. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus clearly defined what a family was by determining the definition of family based on obedience to the word of God. Amen. We could not hear that enough, church. Yeah. We have often emphasized this point rep repetitively precisely because this truth 
is so very ignored in our time. Each of us hopes that our relatives can be developed as brothers. Yeah. However, when genuine edifying fellowship turns into the theater of interfamily warfare over obedience to the word, then our understanding of family must reflect what the word of God says. The desire or lack of desire to hear and obey the word is like a sword that divides between all of our relationships and clearly draws the line that determines whether a person is family or not based on the Bible's biblical definition of family. Let's continue to hear the words of Yeshua now from Matthew 10, starting in verse 34. It says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What? Yes. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Wow. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Each of us must wrestle with this truth. Paul never discarded the nation of Israel as his family. But the record of Acts reveals that he drew a clear line in every individual synagogue that became obstinate and refused to hear and obey the clear teachings of Scripture. True. Yeah. So the man who wrote Romans 9.3, which states, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, that same man was also able to draw a clear line and withdraw from those who maligned the way. Wow. Acts 19, verse 8 through 9, illustrates Paul spending three months in the hopes of brotherly development, mm. but he turned into the theater of interfamily warfare as some of his Jewish family began to malign the only true way in which Adonai will bring about the kingdom of God. This caused Paul to withdraw from them and take the disciples that were truly family, <coughs> according to the scripture, with him. If we are to succeed as the followers of the way that went before us, as, that went before us dead, then we must be able to draw the same distinctions in the theater of yeah. interfamily warfare. Yeah. Jesus' own words warn us that any person who cannot, who cannot do this is not worthy of following him. Yeah. So remember this line, walking the way in Isaiah 35. Yeah. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, uh, then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Who will not go about on it? Wicked fools. And the ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. The only method of bringing Adonai's reign to the earth is the way of holiness, church. Amen. Yeah. 
The unclean will not journey in this way. By definition, they are wicked fools. We all hope to see every one of our relatives walk in this way defined by holiness, but when they malign the way, it may demand separation because they are wicked fools. They are really dumb. In Acts 19, it took Paul, catch this, in Acts 19, it took Paul three months to make this determination. Wow. We've known many who claim to be in the way, and yet after decades, they are not able to make the same distinction or the same determination. We are not attempting to separate you from your family. We're attempting to teach you to rightly define what family is and then invite your relatives into it. Amen! That is what the followers of the way did throughout the biblical record. Amen. So this was the fourth time in the book of Acts that believers are referred to as the way. Take our next slide, and we'll read 8 and 9 again. He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. When Paul entered into the theater of brotherly development, 12 men were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues as well as prophesied. When Paul entered into the theater of interfamily warfare, he drew a distinct line based on the word of God and took his biblical family with him to the new location. You guys learning something? Yeah. The place that Paul chose was the lecture hall or the school of Tyrannus. It's kind of funny. It makes me think of a T-Rex. <laughs> this is Paul entering the theater of competing ideas. This slide will help you understand what we mean by saying that. Now, Paul withdrew from them and separated them. The school of Tyrannus, leisure then, employment of leisure, as especially in philosophic discussions and the like. Thirdly, the place where such discussions were held, a school. It is uncertain whether Tyrannus was a Gentile, well known at the time, who kept a lecture room for philosophic discussions, or lectures on rhetoric, or whether he was a Jew who held a private school or meeting in his house, a Beth Midrash, as was not uncommon in large towns where many Jews were. No one is certain whether the lecture hall of Tyrannus was a Gentile facility dedicated to philosophic discussions or a Jewish house of Midrash dedicated to discussing the Tanakh. (coughs) However, either setting would have placed Paul and his disciples in the middle of a theater of competing ideas. Mm. Listen to, to John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to this truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Whether the theater of competing ideas was of Jewish origin or Gentile origin, it's irrelevant. The word of God is truth. And it draws men of truth 
to itself. Yeah. Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea, and he did not know what truth was when it was quite literally staring him in the face, eye to eye. However, both Jews and Gentiles were drawn to the truth as men like Paul and Cornelius' lives clearly illustrate. Paul was not scared to be in the theater of competing ideas. He didn't hide in a group of 14 points and a doctrine with a certain kind of church emblem and a steeple. Come on. He boldly entered into venues like the Areopagus and the local synagogues, and he did it with equal enthusiasm and fervor. Come on. This is because Paul stood on the word of God that is true in every setting and then trusted that Adonai would draw men to him who wanted the truth. Amen. So remember what Psalm 119 says in verse 74. <coughs> Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. Christian, like the followers of the way who met in the hall of Tyrannus, we are called to be manifestations of the truth that draw men who fear the Lord and want truth. Yeah. They become family to us. Yes. And then we develop them as brothers. Yes. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, 6 through 11. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Yes! Amen. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. When brotherly development fails and interfamily warfare ensues, each of us must draw a line based on the truth. It is our calling to manifest the name and word of God in the theater of competing ideas. This allows men of every nation who fear Adonai to be drawn to the truth and become family with us. This is how followers of the way bring the kingdom of God to the earth in the lives of men from every nation. Now lastly, let us again define truth in the words of Jesus. This is how Jesus defines truth for us okay. from John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is true. Yeah. Yeah. So like Paul, before the Eropagus, or in the synagogue, we can enter into the theater of competing ideas just as Paul and the disciples enter into the Hall of Tyrannus, and we can prevail Amen. just like Paul and the disciples Amen. prevailed. Amen. The only way to do this is by being sanctified in the truth of the word of God Amen. and holding up his word as the only real truth in our lives. Oh Let's continue in verse 10. This went on for two years. Mm. 
so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Wow. Wow. So consider that this chapter began in the theater of brotherly development and produced more men that were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Then the chapter moved to the theater of interfamily conflict where a distinct line had to be drawn regarding those who refuse to obey the word and are not therefore biblical family and those who do obey the word and are biblical family. Then the text moved into the theater of competing ideas and this resulted in all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia hearing the word of God. Wow. This progression of events has proliferated the word in ways that no natural man could have conceived of. Oh. We are suggesting that imitating the followers of the way in each of these theaters of warfare will produce the same results in every generation. Church, this is our call to action. Yeah. And we need to answer this call. Come on, somebody! Let's move to the theater of rival principalities, verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. Paul was committed to the theater of brotherly development. Paul rightly drew biblical lines in the theater of interfamily conflict. Paul showed boldness and fervor in the theater of competing ideas. These faithful steps positioned Paul to prevail in the theater of rival principalities. Yes! Our king is at war with the principalities of this world. Yeah. He will stretch out his hand through you to demonstrate his kingdom breaking into the kingdoms of this earth. Consider Jesus' introductions in the Gospel of Luke as he sent out the 70. This is Luke 10, verse 9. He said, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Come on! The purpose of these extraordinary miracles is to demonstrate that the kingdom of God has come near to the recipients of the miracles. Jesus said very similar things when he sent out the twelve in Matthew 10, picking up in verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pay, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. We should not have to say this, but the charlatans on TV that purport to be imitating Paul by selling handkerchiefs and anointing oils are an absolute violation of the scriptures. Yep. Jesus specifically forbade receiving payment for such activities. Come on. There was nothing special about the handkerchiefs or apron that Paul touched, and he did not sell them. Yep. What was special was the man's devotion to the kingdom of God, breaking him in among the kingdoms of the world. These extraordinary miracles, or extraordinary miracles, were a catalyst in illustrating the kingdom, illustrating the, the kingdom had come near, or the kingdom is at hand. Paul had entered into the theater of rival principalities and is dominating because he is obedient to the word of God and the spirit of Jesus Christ. Amen. This theater 
it's going to heat up in the next verses. Before we read those, let's just brag on what Adonai accomplished through this humble man that was moved away from from rebellion, (coughs) excuse me, and into a full, unabashed obedience to the word of God. Come on. Do you guys want to hear what he accomplished? Yeah. Romans 15 is going to help us with this. Beginning in verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Jesus Christ had promised to be with the members of his body in every nation and in every age. The testimony of Paul was that from Jerusalem all the way to present-day Albania, the Spirit of Jesus accomplished signs and miracles by his hand through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the king of the kingdom entering into the theater of rival principalities through a member of his body on earth and putting them on notice. Saints, the message is clear. The kingdom is here. And I'm going to take those you hold captive away from you. Amen. Amen. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sheba, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks who lived living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So time's not going to permit us to bog down in lengthy historical explanations of Jewish exorcism. Nor are we going to work at defining exactly what kind of priestly position Sceva held. The truth is, is that Luke 11 informs us that there is a point in history which Jewish men were <laughs> driving out demons. However, that is not the point of this story. Luke 11:19 says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Hmm. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon come you. On. Jews who were in the kingdom of God from the founding of Israel up until the presentation of Jesus as the king of the kingdom, undoubtedly demonstrated the supremacy of the kingdom by driving out rival principalities, in other words, demons. However, the point of Luke's inclusion of the sons of Sceva is precisely the opposite point. They knew the name of the king of the kingdom, that is Jesus, and yet they were not in the kingdom or operating in the power of the kingdom. This left them bleeding and naked when entering the theater of rival principalities. This is directly contrasted with Paul, who demonstrated the kingdom was at hand 
even through objects that merely brushed up against him. Wow. Jesus is known to every realm of darkness, and they tremble at his name. Yeah. Yeah. The reports of Paul were being spread among the demonic realm because he is an authentic member of Jesus' body who entered into the theater of rival principalities, and he dominated. The contrast of the failure of Sceva's sons and the success of Paul served to magnify the name of Jesus and for Jesus to be held in high honor by Jews and Greeks alike in Ephesus. We imagine that these events were present within the mind of Paul as he wrote the letter to the Ephesians. So listen to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Come on. In our time, any level of perceived success tends to inflate the ego of the man who seems to have achieved the successful outcome. Oh, yeah. Paul did not suffer from this kind of pride. Rather, his letter to the Ephesians constantly encourages the believer there that they have every blessing in Christ. The point is that Paul did not hold himself up as a preeminent superstar, but rather exhorted the Ephesians to engage in the theater of rival principalities and win. Ephesians 1 continues in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power... Toward us who believe. Come on. Amen. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, Amen. not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The prayer of Paul was that every believer in Ephesus would understand the immeasurable greatness of the power toward us who believe. Come on! This is a far cry from the typical self-exalted leaders who applaud their own achievements as if they were unattainable for the average Christian. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, let's continue engaging with the theater of rival principalities, but this time from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 12. It says, For we, say we, we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the com- cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Man, 
Paul did not see himself as the lone ranger hero who single-handedly defeated the powers of darkness. Instead, he presented the theater of rival principalities as a corporate wrestling between the body of Christ and the rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That is a clash between two kingdoms. Yeah. Our prayer for you is that Paul's prayer would be answered and that you would come to know the kind of power that is available for us who believe. Yes. Moreover, that you would engage with us in the liberation of mankind from the dark spiritual forces with which we are wrestling. In the theater of rival principalities, you have seen how Jesus' name is held in honor when believers demonstrate power over the things that enslave other people. This is true whether we are talking about demons or the sinful nature. Yeah. Okay, wow. let's sit on that point for yeah. a second. We only have 27 minutes and we're going to finish on time. I hope all of you cast out demons everywhere you go. The world needs that. We do that and it's a prolific part of our ministry. But anytime you demonstrate power over something that enslaves another man, you are presenting the kingdom. Amen. This is probably most true of your sinful nature. Yeah. So all of you can go demon hunting if you want, but I would prefer that you simply demonstrated dominion over the desires of your flesh, and that is a presentation of the kingdom to the world around you. Amen. Good work. Well, where this narrative is going is beyond low-level demonic lackeys, and it's going to take aim at the archon over the city of Ephesus. Yeah. Let's go get Starbucks! Yeah. <laughs> Where's they take Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drops. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely Come on. The significance of these verses should not be missed. Yeah. Paul entered into the theater of brotherly development and produced more spirit-filled disciples. Amen. Yes. Paul entered into the theater of interfamily conflict and drew appropriate lines based on the word of God. Yes. This set the stage for prolific expansion of the gospel in Asia. Paul entered in the theater of competing ideas standing on the word alone and trusting that Adonai would draw men who feared the Lord. Amen. This resulted in the entire province of Asia hearing the word of God. Praise God! Yeah. Let's keep going. Paul entered into the theater of rival principalities and displayed the kingdom's dominance over demonic forces. Amen. This caused the name of the Lord to be held in high honor by Jew and Greek alike. Yeah. Hallelujah! And now, say now. Now! Now we see an entry into the theater of radical repentance. Oh, good. Men who believed came and openly confessed their evil deeds. Moreover, they burned the items that facilitated those evil deeds in public. Come on! We want to attempt to grasp how large this display of public repentance was. So we're going to utilize the slide. Let's do it. 50,000 pieces of silver. So pieces of silver literally probably refers to the Greek drachma, which represented a laborer's average daily wage. Mm, yeah. 
and a $15 US per hour or $120 per day, 50,000 drachmas would equal approximately 6 million in today's currency. Let's take our next one. 50,000 silver coins. The Greek text here could refer to drachmas or denarii, two different kinds of silver coins. They were both a worker's daily wage. So this amount would equal approximately 135 years worth of wages. Wow. Look, I don't know which made the bigger impact on you, but it's two ways to quantify it. In our time, we hear of meetings that are reported to be revivals on a fairly regular basis. Oh yeah. Look, we say in all sincerity that we truly hope that they are. However, none of us have ever heard of a meeting that included city-wide repentance as evidenced by the burning of satanic materials worth 135 years of a man's wages. Wow. Perhaps it's worth considering that we should enter into the theater of radical repentance with more boldness and fervor. Come on. Remember the message that prepared the way for the gospel thing, for the gospel originally? Well, it's found in Matthew 3. Yeah, this is this is how it was all prepared for. Matthew 3, 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins. <coughs> they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? First produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Wow. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. How about that? But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Saints, the message of the kingdom has always included the call to radical repentance that is proven by your actions. Moreover, it is always followed with the promise that you will be immersed in the very spirit of holiness. Hallelujah. These kinds of no-holds-barred preaching leave no middle ground for the compromiser who wants to live in darkness and yet inherit the blessings of the kingdom. In our time and in our environment, we surely have a lot to learn from the theater of radical repentance. It was displayed well in Ephesus. Amen. If we would like to see the same level of kingdom expansion as the followers of the way in the first century, then perhaps we should start employing the same methods that they used. Amen. Which brings us to our sixth progress report in the book of Acts. It's found in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
The word for repentance occurs more than 50 times in the Newer Testament, and this does not include all of the other phrases that indicate the same action. Perhaps one of the reasons that we are not seeing the word of the Lord continue to increase and prevail mightily is that we are not calling people to real repentance. It is possible to hear hours of sermons where the word is never used. Wow. That's true. Yeah. But saints, let us enter into the theater of radical repentance so that people have the opportunity Amen. to see the clear line of darkness that prevents them from entering the kingdom. Yeah. You know, there were a couple men in the book of Matthew, some important men, whose <laughs> ministries began with this concept of repentance. Our first in Matthew is Matthew 3, 1 through 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Come on. Guys, John the Immerser began his message with a radical call to repentance so that men could participate in the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. Yeah. But he wasn't the only one at the beginning of Matthew. Hallelujah. The next chapter was Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus also began his preaching ministry with a radical call to repentance so that men could participate in the kingdom of heaven that is at hand. Oh, but he did not stop with them. Thank God. Yeah. Acts 26, verse 15 says, And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand up on your feet, oh. for I have appeared to you for this purpose, oh. to anoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which you, I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Yes! That they may receive forgiveness of sins, in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, no. but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and yeah. turn to God, Amen. performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Yeah. Clearly, Paul's whole ministry could be described as teaching people to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Yeah. Paul said that this repentance was evidenced by performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul taught people to enter into the theater of radical repentance and win by burning the actions, the tools, and the remnants of what once had enslaved them. Oh. Amen! Yeah. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So we are now seeing Paul enter into the theater of spiritual direction. Come on. Yes. Listen to Acts 9, picking up in 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
When Paul called into this, was called into the service of the kingdom, it was clear that he would carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. However, the specific places and ultimate destination were not yet revealed. Yeah. Tonight is the first time that we know of where Paul is receiving the spiritual direction that he must go to Rome. It seems that he wanted to go to Jerusalem to report all that was happening in the Gentile world, but knew that his ultimate destination would be Rome. This view is strengthened by a visit from Jesus in Acts 23.11, where this direction is confirmed. It's significant that Luke is recording Paul's inward compulsion at this point in the story. Paul did not say that he wanted to visit Rome, but rather, I must visit Rome also. Follow me on this, church. When a man enters into the theater of brotherly development and is empowering to the body of Christ, when a man enters into the theater of interfamily conflict and draws appropriate biblical distinctions, when a man enters the theater of competing ideas and stands solely on the word of God, when a man enters the theater of rival principality and demonstrates the kingdom, when a man enters the theater of radical repentance and leads himself and others away from darkness, then the man is guaranteed to enter into the house, the theater of spiritual direction, and gain greater insight into the tasks that are ahead of him. Yes! After Paul saw the kingdom of God turn the city, saw the kingdom of God turn the city of Ephesus upside down for the gospel, the Lord began moving in his heart to do the same in the capital of the world, which was Rome. Well, why don't we take a small excerpt from the epistle to the Romans? Matt this, loves it. This is chapter 12, yeah. verses 1 through 2. Yeah! Come on! Let's go. I appeal to you, therefore, <laughs> brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Come on. Each of these theaters of warfare that we have discussed so far, well, they're all opportunities for victories, victorious triumph, and tragic compromise with the world. Yeah. It's a choice each time. Ooh. The record of the scripture encourages us to enter into each of these theaters and win. Yes. Yeah. The result is great insight into God's will for your own personal life. Come on now. Let's review these again, and then we will speak of the seventh and final theater. The theater of warfare, brotherly development. This begs the question, are you in the business of developing your brothers? The second one, inter-family conflict. This begs the question, are you drawing appropriate biblical lines? Three, the theater of competing ideas. Are you standing on the word alone? Four, the theater of rival principalities. Are you displaying victory over darkness in your daily life? The theater of radical repentance. Are you the one that is leading the way in the demonstration of radical repentance? Six, spiritual direction. Are you being given greater insight into your calling. 
If you are not, I suggest that you revisit items one through five, and that is probably why. Come on now. Let's read verse 22, and then we will enter into the theater of equally valid concurrent missions. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. So the culmination of Paul's efforts in these theaters of warfare have brought him into the seventh and most beautiful of all. The seventh theater is equally valid concurrent missions performed by a host of fellow workers. We have a slide for you that will give you a sampling of the many ministers that were raised up as equals and continued the work beyond Paul. This is the host of fellow workers. Wow. Romans 16.3, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers. Romans 16.9, Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. 16.21, Timothy, my fellow worker. 2 Corinthians 8.23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker. Wow. Philippians 2.25, Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker. Philippians 4.3, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Colossians 4.10-11, Aristarchus, send you his greetings. This is Mark, cousin of Barnabas. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 2, Timothy is a fellow worker. In Philemon 1, Philemon is a fellow worker. In Philemon 23, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke are fellow workers. Come on. This list is not comprehensive, but is given here just to give you an idea of how important these theaters of warfare are. What begins in brotherly development ends in men who can engage in equally valid concurrent missions all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. No part of Paul's ministry was performed alone. No part of Paul's ministry was aimed at his elevation to a single position of greatness. Good. Every part of Paul's ministry rightly entered into the theater of warfare and prevailed by producing fellow workers who would carry on the kingdom expansion into perpetuity. That's good. Yes. Well, let's finish our chapter together as we see Artemis in danger of being about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. About the what? The, the way. way. Wow. There's uh, some conflict here. This is the fifth time in the book of Acts that, we, the, that the way is referred to directly. This is because as the kingdom of God is expanding, the forces of darkness resist and attempt to stop the progress. Ooh. The good news is that they are all destined to fall. Amen. Let's take our slide. This is the way the fifth time mentioned in Acts 19.23, which we just read. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
Luke has just prefaced one of the more monumental clashes in the New Testament between the expansion of the kingdom and a regional archon. Let's continue in our text. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in no little business for the crowd. <coughs> he called them together, along with the workmen in related trades, and said, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow, Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, oh, wow. and in practically the whole province of Asia. Oh, wow. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is there is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Let's hope so. Yeah. So we told you in the introduction how intrinsic, intrinsically linked the economy of Ephesus was to the worship of Artemis. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. The expansion of the kingdom of God that has broken into the region of Asia is threatening the economy of the region because it's based on the worship of Artemis. This is also one of those rare times when the accusations being leveled against Paul, well, they should be taken as a compliment. They are as follows, and we put them on a slide for you. Come on now. Accusations that are compliments. The first one. Paul has led people astray from Artemis in Ephesus. Yeah! Paul has led people astray from Artemis in practically the whole province of Asia. Paul says that man-made gods are no gods at all. That's right! Let's keep rolling into 32. 
The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense for the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great as our team is of the Ephesians. <laughs> so in our introduction, we reviewed the slide called Rising Tensions Between Rome and the Jews. These verses are illustrative of that existing situation. Jews who were not followers of the way pushed Alexander to the front. This was probably to take the opportunity to join in the demonic fury against the followers of the way, mm. or at the very least to delineate themselves from the believing Jews. However, when the Gentile crowd realized that Alexander was a Jew, they shouted him down. To fully grasp what this situation would mean for a Jewish follower of the way, let's quote a scripture and then speak of its relevance. This is Matthew 10, 22. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The Ephesians were disposed to express hatred to anyone of Jewish background. However, among the Jewish people, the followers of the way were hated even by their own countrymen. The followers of the way were truly hated by all men as Jesus predicted. It might be worth asking ourselves, how is it that we get along so well with the world that hated Jesus and all of his serious followers? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, we want to encourage you to engage in every theater of warfare, even if it means that you are hated. Come on, hallelujah. Because he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Amen. Verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore... Since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and do not do anything rash. You have, you have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Friends, I'm going to read one more verse. That's 20 verse 1. The chapter break falls in an odd place. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. We have our final slide of the evening, the theater of warfare. In brotherly development, are you developing your brothers? With interfamily conflict, are you drawing appropriate lines? With competing ideas, are you standing on the word alone? Rival principalities, are you displaying victory over darkness? Radical repentance, are you leading the way in radical repentance? Spiritual direction. Are you being given greater insight into your calling? And finally, equally valid concurrent missions. Are you helping to raise up 
a host of men that are on equally valid and concurrent missions with your own. Friends, our chapter tonight began in brotherly development, and it also ended in brotherly development. That's why we read one more verse. This shook Ephesus to its very core. Archons were threatened. Rival principalities were dominated. Radical repentance was achieved, and the kingdom was advanced. This was all made possible by rising to each theater of warfare that men of God are called to engage in. The best part is that what began with brotherly development ended in fully trained disciples that stayed in Ephesus on an equally valid and concurrent mission to Paul, who was now on his way to Macedonia, to Jerusalem, and eventually to Rome. Pastors, this meeting is yours. Yeah. With this slide staying on the screen, Beth, I want to read to you a short passage from Ephesians. So taking all that Paul engaged with here, it gives you a new perspective on his writing in the epistle to the Ephesians. He's speaking about these very things, about the theater that has been entered there, the warfare that was afoot, beginning with brotherly development and working its way, advancing its way thoroughly until the full and equally valid concurrent missions that men were on. Listen to what Paul says. In Ephesians 3 and verse 7. We're going to leave this on the screen so you can see that. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. You know that kind of grace that it speaks of in Titus. That teaches you not only to say no to sin. But is a purification for those who are zealous for good works. Which Which was given me by the working of his power. The working of his power to enter and win in the theater of warfare. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone. Can't you hear his very mezuzah there? His very purpose of taking people out of darkness and into light? Bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, somebody say the church. The church. Somebody say that's me. That's me. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What begins with us entering into warfare for our brothers, with our brothers, is going to advance where we take down the archons that are there. That is all part of the warfare, the theater of warfare that we have entered in and that we must take on fully. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And listen to how this ends. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Church, you are part of a war. You're part of a brotherhood who is making war on the enemies. But you see the importance. You see the beginning and the ending of entering into this theater. That it is about the brotherhood and the priesthood that's raised up there. Stand your feet, saints. Oh, the joy that we have to enter into the theater of war. Yeah. Yeah. And we get to do it side by side with one another. The Spirit of God inside of you 
partnering with the Spirit of God inside your brother and sister next to you, it makes us a conquering force. Yeah. Yeah. So as we pray with joy, we're going to fellowship and then go outside these four walls and continue to enter this theater of warfare with the expectancy to win. win. Everybody say win. 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 Mighty God, we thank you for this We thank you for this collection of saints that you have empowered, you have equipped, you have filled with your domination and your spirit. Lord, let your words and let your deeds flow through us. Let it be a demonstration of your authority in heaven and work on earth. 